Last time we have been seeing already the first five sutras from the chapter number four and last of Patanjali's fundamental work, the Yoga Sutra. In the chapter number four, Patanjali is analyzing the final accomplishment. It's called Kaivalya Pada, the chapter on Kaivalya or the state of Samadhi, the state of a spiritual accomplishment. And to be able to express truly what Kaivalya is in a metaphysical way, Patanjali first of all needs to define a little bit about the mind, the evolution of the human being, the karma, the gunas, the relationship between manifestation and spirit. And that is why he starts the first, the fourth chapter, he starts it by actually uh, elaborating on these subjects mentioned. In the first four sutras, he spoke a little bit about the nature of the mind, and he explained how the transformation from one state or another occurs through the overflow of Prakriti, through the karma creating the channels for it, allowing for the transformation to go there, and he ends with that very beautiful sutra in which he postulates, he announces, he sets forth the existence of a universal mind, which we define a little bit like the collective subconscious mind, a mind which is bathing all the individual minds. So the mind is at the same time individual and at the same time collective, universal, at a deeper level of existence. And in the sutra number six, he turns back to some of the primary statements because he now starts analyzing a little bit elements related to karma. And he says, of these, which means of these five, of the five forms of mind or accomplishment or perfection described in the very first sutra, the one where he said that perfection, accomplishment of the mind can come from birth, herbs, uh, mantras and so on. So he says, out of those five, he turned back to that, only the one, or the mind, the mind born of meditation, of samadhi actually, as this was written rare, is free of impressions and vehicles. That simply says, here Patanjali prepares the next step because he's going to talk about the influence of the samskaras and vasanas, the so-called latent impressions of the subconscious mind, and those are the ones that produce transmigration, those are the carriers of karma, the instruments through which karma manifests, and that is why Patanjali now going, trying to explain technically how this occurs, because before he just gave a general presentation, now he will start analyzing what causes these samskaras and vasanas, these latent impressions, or as I translated them here, these impressions and vehicles, vasana is a vehicle and samskara is an impression, ultimately they have the same meaning, there is a small shade, a small nuance between them, which is not really relevant at this point. And therefore, Patanjali starts now explaining how these things happen. He goes into details. And he says, basically, all the accomplishments which arise from all the other forms, all the other four forms of mind, they unfortunately still produce samskaras and vasanas. So they can give perfections, 
but they cannot give freedom from samskaras and vasanas and consequently as it appeared already and as it will appear next they cannot therefore provide the state of liberation that is why the yogis say that ultimately uh, things which come from birth things which come from herbs things which come from mantras and tapas they cannot yield the ultimate liberation, the total liberation. They can yield things which are neighboring to it, but they cannot cross a certain threshold. Patanjali says, it is only the mind born, or the perfection, the accomplishment born of samadhi, and I already explained last time that here Patanjali uses the word samadhi rather with the meaning of samyama, so that kind of meditation, samyama, which we described so much in chapter 3, only this kind of samyama, samadhi, produces the sort of accomplishment which is at the same time not loaded with samskaras and vasanas. So in this way, Patanjali actually defines a limit and says this one can go to nirvikalpa, this one can go to the transcendent level, and the other four, they will stop short of the ultimate level. They will not be able to reach this ultimate level. That's why I often tell to people, and it's not my statement, it's been made by Shivananda, by Ramakrishna, and other gigantic yogis, that the other modalities inborn qualities, uh, herbs and other Ayurvedic things, mantras in the meaning of rituals and magic methods, and finally uh, tapas itself, they can again not produce the transcendent spiritual reality. They can come close, and then from there still samadhi, samyama needs to be used. You can see that very clearly in the case of Ramana Maharishi, in the case of whom his first state of samadhi was produced by birth, because he didn't do anything, it just came to him as an inborn quality, and then he spent another ten years meditating to be able to establish himself into that form of consciousness, and if he wouldn't have done it, he would have accepted a sort of semi-enlightenment in which there were still samskaras and vasanas present there. The sutra number 7 continues as extension from this one. This one said that, okay, only one mind doesn't give samskaras and vasanas, and now Patanjali jumps, but it will be related. These two will go hand in hand and give a combined result. Patanjali now also mentions things about karma. He says the actions of an advanced yogin are neither white nor black. Those of the others are threefold. Basically, this is a system of classifying karma. There are many systems of classifying karma. There can be physical karma, astral karma, or subtle karma, and causal karma, or spiritual karma. That's the way in which Sri Yukteswar classifies it in his famous discourse or revelation to Yogananda Paramahamsa. There are other ways of looking upon the karma, but here Patanjali looks upon it strictly from the standpoint of its effects. And basically he says there exist four types of karma, three which are mundane, and one which is transcendent, which is yogic. 
the other people, he says, the non-yogis, which means those who are not detached, those who do not consecrate, those who have not reached a liberation from samskaras and vasanas, they have a karma which is threefold. And this threefold is mentioned by the commentators like Vyasa and Shankara and other great commentators. And they say that these threefold karma means black karma, white karma and grey karma. Or good karma, not good karma and both good and bad karma. Mixed, <coughs> that would be. And of course, we all know that what that means. The negative karma is the black karma, is the not good karma, is the one that produces negative effects. Subjectively, yes, but subjectively so. The positive karma is the karma of those who perform saintly actions. Vyasa or Shankara say that, for example, if you read the Vedas, if you do mantras, if you do pujas, if you do fire ceremonies, and so on, you can create positive karma, good karma. Negative karma is obviously when harming others and acting out of egoism. And then there is the so-and-so karma, which is the karma which everybody produces. For example, you crop some tomatoes, and while you pick up the tomatoes, you kill some worms and bugs which exist in that field, in that culture. This is perhaps a mixed-up karma. On one hand, you do something good, you create food for some people, you do farming. On the other hand, you kill some insects. So there is like most of the karma that the human beings are involved with is a so-and-so karma. It's almost impossible to do a karma which is 100% good. The only karma which is 100% good is the karma which is said to come from ritual and religious acts. You recite mantras for the whole world, such as you pray for world peace or whatever you do. That will create a positive karma. But any other mundane action, you give some money to a beggar, by giving some money to that beggar you can actually harm somebody indirectly in the operation and you didn't even know. That's why your karma will be mixed. It will be good and bad in a mixed form. And of course then there is the demonic karma, the negative, the hellish karma, which is totally proceeding from acts of destruction. These three karmas are of course related with everything which is triadic in the universe, and Patanjali himself is going to relate them, not coincidentally, with the three gunas, with sattva, rajas, and tamas guna, and these are therefore karmas manifested, and then there exists the fourth those of you who remember, there is always something in yoga about three plus something. The three musketeers were four. This is not from yoga, but it's just a collective subconscious mind reflection of this crossing from three to four. Um, and there are a few other dictums, I'm not going there. What I'm trying to say here is that there is a three, which represents manifestation, the physical world, the subtle world, the causal world, and then there is something beyond that, which is the divine consciousness. This duality is symbolized by a triangle, which is one, two, three, the sides of the triangle, and then in the middle of the triangle there is the eye of God, and the eye of God represents something beyond manifestation, it's the fourth, but it's not the fourth like the other three. It's something else. 
This is illustrated in numerology and in sacred geometry, of course, by the number pi, the number pi, which is 3.1415 and an infinity of decimals, which is basically a transcendent number. There are three full units, and then something which is infinite, which is exactly that number of decimals, which makes the number pi in modern mathematics to be called a transcendent number. And this being said, it's always the same thing. There are three things which define this world, and there are three forms of karma, therefore, corresponding to them. And then there is a fourth type, which is characteristic to enlightenment, to purusha, to nirvana, to the godlike consciousness. In a similar way, Patanjali says, uh, the actions of an advanced yogin, the karma, which results, of course, because action is the word karma in Sanskrit, then they are neither white nor black. So there is karma which is white, karma which is black, karma which is both white and black, and then there is a fourth category which is qualitatively different, and which is karma which is neither white nor black. Here, this sutra, of course, makes the union between the Yoga Sutra and the legendary, the famous Bhagavad Gita. That's exactly what Krishna teaches to Arjuna in Bhagavad Gita. There exist three gunas, three tendencies of nature, and according to them there exist three dharmas, three inclinations, three ways of, um, of living your life. And therefore, uh, ex there exists three consecration of the fruits of your actions. And then beyond those, there exists the fourth, which is consecrating your actions to God. In that particular situation, Krishna defining himself as God. And he says, you consecrate to me. This is neither number one, nor number two, nor number three. This is the transcendent one. And this will not yield any physical karma. Uh, therefore, here the idea is very clear. Here Patanjali defines the no karma, the karma which is of not of any guna, not of any type, not pertaining to any plane of nature, and he makes it clear that if a yogi is acting from this mind mentioned before, the fifth form of mind, the one from samadhi and samyama, then the actions of such a yogi will not care uh, or will not carry a manifested karma. They will produce a sort of virtual karma, divine karma, transcendent karma, karma which is neither white nor black, or better way, better said, a karma which is out of this world, a karma which is not manifested. And of course, it is not karma properly said. It is, you can call it karma by analogy, but it's not an effect. This is basically resulting from detaching from the fruits of action, renouncing the fruits of action, detaching from the authorship of action, and at the same time from consecrating the fruits of one's actions. And therefore, what, what Krishna in Bhagavad Gita says under the form of Karma Yoga, here Patanjali in Yoga Sutra says identically, but he says it under the form of Raja Yoga. He says it in the form of a mental and even supramental analysis of the principles that are at the basis of reality. And therefore, uh, this 
is analyzed extensively by this paragraph, this sutra is analyzed extensively by Vyasa, Shankara and other large commentators, are very great commentators, because they even try to give examples like, you know, good karmas, bad karmas, mixed karmas, and then of course the no karma, the neither good or bad, the transcendent karma. This can take us to the idea as well, if Patanjali puts it like this, that there exists a sort of divine karma, but that divine karma will not produce manifested effects. Like, it is presumable, but nobody has explained that fully, that in the kingdom of heaven, so to speak, in a world of pure spirit, there is a relationship of the individual consciousness with the universal consciousness, relationship which ideally should be a relationship of oneness, of total merging, a yoga, a samyama. But it can be presumed from the saying of Patanjali that our ultimate relationship in terms of spirit with the spirit of God, so to speak, is determined by this no karma, in the meaning that not all the enlightened yogis on this planet, not all the enlightened Buddhists, Christian saints or whatever, has done the same thing, even spiritually. All those who got rid of any form of karma of the type 1, 2, 3, they still have behaved differently. Some of them have been even more vehement. Krishna is a very peculiar type of avatara and enlightened being. Uh, others, he cannot be compared really with St. Francis of Assisi, who is very, very peculiar in another way, in a completely different way. And that's why you can ask yourself, you know, all these different saints and mystics, men and women, who preach the ultimate truth in various ways, it's like they go in a different pocket of God, ultimately. They will have a kind of different relationship. One proclaims himself like, I am God, I am a Messiah, I am this and I am that. And another one is not even known by name, lived in a desert. He is not known historically. He is just an anonymous, modest, humble, unknown spiritual practitioner, which only God knows and the great rulers of karma and the spirits of Shambhala. And therefore, there must be a difference. All these people are saved. All these people are in the host of the saints. They are in the kingdom of heaven, or whatever you want, whichever way you want to put it. But still there must be a sort of position with the divine. Somebody who has proclaimed himself, I am the son of God, and has lived accordingly and acted accordingly, you can expect that at the level of inside the divine consciousness, there is even there a sort of structure of some kind, because the divine consciousness is at the same time the perfect order. It's not characterized by chaos. It is undifferentiated in terms of its quality, but at the same time it is characterized by unity in multiplicity. And that is why this is a very complex, I'm just subject, I'm just opening this door for you. Patanjali doesn't mention it and no commentator m uh, mentions it, but it is like here Patanjali talks about karma also as an extension. It's not karma anymore because karma is related to the lower levels, may mostly to Ajna Chakra, to the third eye, 
but then it's like Patanjali speaks, as above, so below. If there is something like this in the manifestation, there must exist something like this in the non-manifestation as well. It has a completely different function and a completely different way of action, but still there is because the manifested world is actually the externalization of a non-manifested internal thing in the soul of God, in the universal consciousness. And that is why Patanjali here shows this holographic spirit that there is something which makes the connection with the non-manifestation. This is a place where Patanjali actually, there are several comments, as I said, done about this, and uh, by Vyasa, Shankara and the others, and there are attempts of clarifying this, but nobody has gone deeper than that. Actually, what I'm telling you here is not in the commentaries, it is something which uh, appears in, uh, through the mental insight. And I'm continuing then, and Patanjali continues with his theory of the triple karma and of the beyond karma, and he says, therefrom, from this triple karma, unlike that of the yogis, comes the manifestation of potential desires according to their ripening. It can be translated in other ways. I have seen wildly different translations. Here this sutra is particularly ambiguous, like the words used in Sanskrit are particularly ambiguous. And basically what Patanjali says is from those karmas, good karma, bad karma, and black and white karma, grey karma, there comes the manifestation of potential desires, those are the vasanas and the samskaras, the sprouts, the roots, the seeds of things, according to their ripening. This is a very, very deep little word there, because Patanjali is always trying to look at the big picture and then to boil everything in just a few words. And the capacity of synthesis of Patanjali is astonishing. That's why generations of yogis have been in awe in front of the Yoga Sutras, like how much these men thought and thought and rewrote them and boiled them down and reformulated and thought about them like to make them, to make those sutras as short and concise as possible. Each sutra is a meditation. Each sutra expresses a hundred thousand things which result from it. And Patanjali is just expressing it with words which can mean all those things simultaneously. And here Patanjali has a brilliant example in this ambiguous sutra. He says, from this triple karma comes the manifestation of the potential seeds, According to their ripening, according to their ripening, he says, these vasanas will manifest only if they find the right conditions. Remember what I said in the previous discourse, that the karma, or the ripening of the cause and the, to, into effect, is exactly like a good farmer that removes obstacles to the water, and the water naturally fills up those gaps. It flows in those directions. Exactly in a similar way, here Patanjali says, all these flow into things, like now a door is open, and your vasanas, your samskaras, push you into this or that. This automatically makes that karmas, vasanas, will, for example, ripen, 
according to their possibility. An extreme example which is given by Shankara in his commentary and it shouldn't be taken literally, it is possible, but it shouldn't be really taken literally, is that Shankara says, if by a freak of your karma you have accumulated such twisted karma and things are so extreme that you get reborn as a dog, then, for example, your samskaras or vasanas about being a bookworm, about being a splitting of the hair philosopher, will not manifest. It's not time for them to manifest in this life when you are born as a dog. Because a dog cannot be a bookworm and it, he cannot be a philosopher that splits the hair. And that's why this is something which will have to wait for another life when this person, this spirit, is born as a human and then everything goes into that direction. This is a theory, what Patanjali says here is that we have a hundred thousand karmas produced by our vasanas, samskaras. Some of those karmas are good, some of them are bad because many people tend to believe that if you did a karma in a life, then in the next life you are dealing with it. But actually karma is, imagine that you are having a thousand pendulums, huge pendulums, which are hanging from some invisible support, and all these pendulums have a different length. Some of them are a few meters long or tens of meters, and some of them are hundreds of kilometers long. And in the moment when you swing those pendulums, you swing, you can swing all thousand of them, and then they will start coming back each one according to its own period of oscillation. So the karmas don't come back at the same time. They don't even come back in the same sequence. I donated uh, billions of dollars to a charitable cause, and therefore I have the karma to earn money, to win money ridiculously easy, like I win the national lottery, the Super Bowl or something, and I was violent and I broke the legs of Walter. So I have two karmas. In March 19 or whatever, in March 1555, I broke the legs of Walter. And in April 1555, I donated all my wealth to a charitable cause. You would expect that in this life, now in some month, in July, you are going to break your legs. And in August you are going to win the national lottery, like they are going to come in the same sequence. And no, karma, every one of them ripens in its own time, which is given by some very severe astrological rules. Svara Yoga, which you study in this school in the advanced levels of your practice, elucidates when does karma ripen and how it ripens. And therefore, please remember that karmas occur in a sequence, your actions, but the reactions, they can come in five minutes or in a hundred thousand years back. There is sometimes karma which is instantaneous, and there is sometimes karma which is taking long, long time. Therefore, what I do in this life is not that I deal with the karma from my previous life. I deal with chunks and bits of karma which come from a thousand previous lives, Mixed is like a kaleidoscope of everything. And therefore it's like, what combination am I going to get in this life? Sometimes the combination is of very good things. Sometimes the combination is of very bad things. And Patanjali says, 
karma will group itself according to some ripening, like when the right conditions are there. For example, I have a bad health karma from the life number 520, and I'm having a bad sexual karma from the life from my previous life. In, if these start becoming manifested in this life, then they will probably come together. For example, I get polio when I am a child, and I am born crippled and paralyzed, and I am in a wheelchair, and then of course I am going to have a bad sexual karma, because I am not going to be Don Juan, and no woman is going to look at me the way I am. If I look like Stephen Hawking, it will be hard to be a seductor of any kind. And therefore, it's like, when I am on, then other things are coming. The Romanian folklore says, no trouble ever comes alone. And there is another proverb which says, when a man is poor, even his cows are lazy. Like for agricultural work, you know. The cows are industrious for the one who is wealthy. It's like, it's bad luck over bad luck over bad luck. Because it's like, when you are caught in a certain way, then karma says, okay, now since you are biting the dust, take this and take also this, and take also this, because now we get the circumstances in which you can pay this, and this, and this, and this. It would be very difficult to create bad circumstances when everything is brilliant in your life. So it's like, sometimes people have a fully bad life, and then in the next life they have a fully brilliant life. And it's because their karma was mixed, and instead of having both good and bad, the mother nature catches some opportunity, the vasanas, they catch some ripening circumstances, and they say, since this guy is getting this bad thing, let him also get this bad thing and this bad thing. And we are going to make this life a life of expiation, a life of atonement, a life of paying bad karma. And then at least he will be relieved in the next time. So the karmas are coming according to a intelligence, to a synchronicity of the universe, which is hard to understand. And Patanjali has tried to boil this extremely complex situation in few words. He said, therefrom, from this triple karma, which means you have all sorts of karmas in your backpack, maybe you have been a Brahmin in India three lifetimes ago, and you did lots of Veda recitation, mantras, pujas, uh, fire ceremonies, whatever, and you created, you have in your backpack some five kilos of white karma, maybe in some other previous life you have been a slaughterer in a slaughterhouse, and you killed animals over animals, and you have some negative karma in your backpack, and you have been also an ambitious regular citizen who did regular actions, and sometimes you have created grey karma, so and so. You've pleased some people, you've hurt some other people, or whatever. You've pleased some people, but you hurt Mother Nature, such as by creating pollution, destruction of the environment, and other things like those. And therefore, uh, what Patanjali says, these karmas, they are waiting for a breach to manifest, exactly as a farmer removes the dike to the water, as I said before, the dam. And when there is a breach, the water simply naturally gushes through that bridge. It pushes forward. So the karma is waiting. And it's like all of them are on standby. What karma is going to manifest now? The white, the black, or the gray? 
It depends of some circumstances. And the point is that once it starts, it keeps going. For example, if you are a melancholic, pessimistic person, you are reserving to yourself a bad future. Because melancholic, pessimistic persons always think in terms of defeat. No, no, this is not good. I am not good. Perfection is well and badly understood. Perfection is, you can't do that. You can't. I know I'm going to be left alone. I can see myself that by the time I'll be 60 years old, I'll be alone and nobody will care about me. I can see that the world crisis will come and I'll lose all my money and I'll be a poor bum when I'll be old and die in misery. I get, you know, people who think like this and these people according to the laws of the mind and according to the laws of success, they are just creating nightmare over nightmare over nightmare. And if you ask them, for God's sake, man or woman, try to be more optimistic. Why can't you think positively? Why can't you project something positive? They cannot. They say all the time, to my mind, there comes the problems, the negative side of things. And therefore, in the moment when you are born like this, you are cooked for trouble. You are asking for it. In that life, you will not win the national lottery. Because your mind all the time says, I'm going to have trouble, I'm going to screw up, I'm going to this. Winning the lottery is for the optimist, positive one. So when you have a certain mind, all your life you like start like a chain. And such is the situation that in your backpack, there is all sorts of karma. And those sorts of karma, wait, if you start a chain of trouble, there will be trouble over trouble over trouble over trouble. Soon your health will start decaying. Soon you'll start going into surgery, doctors, from bad to worse. Because, and it's exactly like from above, you can see this person is having a painful life right now. It's a life in which his life is, or her life is going to the dogs. And it's simply because in this life you have like filtered only or only or major, predominantly negative karmas. So it's like this is the time for their ripening. They ripen. Now they caught the bridge. Now they go through that bridge and you get the full monte. You never get a good karma. It would be nice to say, I had a bad karma, I was melancholic, pessimistic, negativistic, I got trouble, I got trouble, I got trouble, and one day I've got an exceptionally wonderful karma, I, I won the national lottery and got lots of money, so at least I got some fun. No, usually it doesn't happen this way. It can, because it's not that every life is a block, but there are some periods of time, there are some flows, it's obvious that if you are born crippled and with a crippled body and as an invalid, then some, some things can happen in your life and some things cannot happen in your life, at least not in that lifetime. And that is why, uh, remember that Patanjali does a wonderful analysis. He says the, these potential desires, they manifest according to their ripening. It's such a twist of sentence because he says so much with just those few words. It basically says things come in families. They are related. They come in clusters, in chunks, in bunches. They, none, no action comes alone. 
and generally you can see the tendency in a human being's life where it is going. And this was expanded by Vyasa or Shankara, I forgot who, into even giving this extreme example that if you are an animal, then karma which ripens to that animal condition will manifest because some human karmas, such as you are an academic student, can't manifest when you are born as a dog. You won't see a dog going in the library and started flipping through books or something like this. And that is why, uh, therefore, that karma is simply not ripening. Good, bad, whatever it is, it's blocked. The dam is there. And all the karmas which can fit with the life of a dog, they will all flow because now it's the moment for them to flow. Now they caught you red-handed, so to speak. It's not about red-handed because this is not a personal thing. It's just a law of nature and the way things flow. This being said, we move further. The Sutra number 9 continues. Because memory and impression are the same in form, there is continual sequence, although they may be divided by class of birth, place, and time. This is both long, ambiguous, and at the same time it makes a very subtle reference to something older in the text, something prior in our text. I'm reading it again. It says, because memory and impressions are the same in form, the samskaras, the vasanas, the actions which they produce, there is continual sequence, although they may be divided by class of birth, place and time. The story with class of birth, place and time, this syntagm, was used in the end of chapter number 3, and we commented it during this season, when we finished the chapter number 3, there, Patanjali was describing a sort of supreme samyama. And he said, when you make samyama over the things which are beyond time, when you try to understand past, present, and future, and the moment that you make samyama on the moment and the sequence of time, I will leave you the pleasure to go back to the commentary to that sutra and to analyze it. It's a long commentary and there are a lot of things there. When you make samyama on that, you start understanding the sequence of the moments because the moments are static and thus you understand, you, you get the supreme wisdom. He says the wisdom, the wisdom which is not born of earthly knowledge arises and he means the spiritual wisdom, the knowledge of the spirit, the consciousness of the present moment, the, the power of now as I called it then, this present which is Purusha, the spirit, Atman, the transcendent consciousness. And in the next sutra, he says, well, if you do this meditation and acquire this wisdom of Atman, this knowledge of God, then you can see the difference even between objects which are separated from each other or which cannot be separated from each other by class of birth, place and time. When he uses such a clear syntagm, it's obvious that he wouldn't use the same words if he wouldn't, he says, as said in that sutra, remember what I said there, now let's get back to it. At that time I said, Patanjali says, at that time I said there are objects which cannot be defined, distinguished, differentiated by class of birth, place and time, but 
the, the divine consciousness can still differentiate them. They are different from, for God's consciousness. For example, class of birth. You can define a cow from a horse. But what if there are two cows? Then you define, you divide them or you differentiate them by space. This cow which is here and with this cow which is here. But what if it is impossible to find where they are and therefore you cannot differentiate them by the space? Space, time, class of birth can differentiate things. When these are lacking, it's like I'm dealing with two things which are identical. And yet for the divine consciousness there is nothing which is identical. Everything is the divine consciousness. Therefore everything has a divine personality. Everything is I. I am. And therefore God can distinguish every atom from every atom in this creation. The divine consciousness does not, does not repeat things. Everything is unique because the divine consciousness expresses this oneness. And here... While Patanjali said the knowledge of Atman can give you the power to distinguish, to see this oneness of everything, which reflects the oneness of the divine consciousness, here Patanjali comes and says, because memory and impressions are the same in form, there is continual sequence, although they may be divided by class of birth, place and time. So he comes back a little bit to that idea. He says, objects and conditions which are different, and which obviously we see that are different, nevertheless, they are one. So there he said, things which look, look same, they are different. And now he says, and nevertheless, things which seem to be different by class of birth, space and time, actually they are united by a common thing. And that united, that union, is a continual sequence, he calls it here which simply says everything in the divine consciousness can be looked upon as static. That's the Purusha aspect. That is the Prakasha aspect, the divine life, the Shiva aspect, the non-manifestation, the Nirvana aspect. And then there is the Prakriti, the manifestation, the Shakti aspect, which is, of course, in continuous motion, in continuous change and transformation. And therefore, Patanjali has said, the divine consciousness can make you see diversity where there seems to be oneness. And even where there is diversity, there is still oneness because everything is unified by this. This is the unifying factor. And this unifying factor, he calls it a continual sequence, which simply says, if the different moments of time are stroboscopic, because that's the theory. That's what I said in the chapter 3. Each moment is independent. It's like a slideshow from a movie. In a cinema movie, the, inim the images projected 25 times per second on the screen, each one of them is static. It's a, a movie in a cinema hall. It's just a series of slideshows. It's a fast slideshow which gives the impression of movement. So therefore, every moment when I'm sitting here, when I move my hand, those myriads of stroboscopic moments, every moment, this instant and the next instant, they are each one of them immobile, static. That's the Shiva aspect. That's the Purusha aspect. It's each one of them is like a moment frozen in time. It's here and now. It's not moving. It's perfect. 
And then there comes the next. The slideshow goes cluck, cluck, and there comes the next. And the difference in time is infinitesimally small. It is so small that there is nothing to measure it with by. It is infinitely small and therefore we can't measure it with devices or something. It's only we know conceptually that it is there. And therefore, the next moment is causally related to this moment. Try to imagine what would be if we'd have two moments of time, and in one moment you would be the way you are, and in the next moment each one of you would have a physical position which is five meters away from where you are now. Like, poop, poop, you know, suddenly you will be here, you'd be there. You know, there would be like a, a rupture in the events. It would be like a glitch in the whole thing. You know, suddenly the universe makes, and you are somewhere else. Like you dematerialize from one point and you appear in another point. And it's because the director of the movie, or better said, the editor of the movie, made a blunder. He put a sequence and a sequence which were different from each other, and it's exactly like when some people destroy a cinematographic movie which is old, and then you see that the image skips, it jumps. The movie is incomplete, it's broken, and it's an old cliché, and therefore you see some action and then suddenly the image jumps. And everybody in the yoga hall, in the cinema hall, is very dissatisfied and says, Ah, oh, shucks, this movie is so destroyed. It's like, it's very frustrating. Guys, why did you cut, clip this movie? You know, it's so frustrating. So, basically we know that in the nature, the way we see it, moments continue from each other. The next moment, you are placed exactly in the same position or infinitesimally away from it if you move a bit. And therefore, things give the impression that you are sitting, that you are moving uniformously, that you are doing this, that you are doing that. That simply says it's like the cosmic consciousness has a sort of logic to it. The universe is not just a chaotic slideshow in which different slides are coming and the whole thing is pum, 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 pum. No, it gives the impression of stability, of causality. You walk, you go, you do this, you live your life, you meet with him, she meets with you. Then this happens, there is a fluid flow of lives and events. This causality is, as I said in the, con in the commentary to that sutra from chapter 3, this is Shakti, this is the glue of the universe. The different moments are like slides. Completely isolated. Each slide is a slide which you can take and say, this is one moment, this is the next moment, and they are independent from each other. And yet the universe makes that the next moment fluidly flows from the previous moment, so that the universe doesn't seem to be chaotic and discontinuous. The laws of the universe work. Imagine what would be if you throw yourself off a high cliff, you would fall for a hundred meters freely, According to the laws of gravitation, so the causality produces the law of gravitation and says this person in free flow has to accelerate with this many meters per second squared, and then suddenly the film editor makes a blunder and suddenly you are not there, you are again on the cliff or you are 100 meters lower. There is like a rupture in the continuity of events. It's like, what the heck was this? The laws of nature don't work anymore. We call this the laws of nature. Like when you, when somebody falls, free skydiving, people who do skydiving, you don't expect them to f fall like this. They fall according to the trajectory 
which is manifested by the law of gravitation. And therefore, what tells to each moment that it has to be sequenced compared to the previous and the next in a way in which it makes sense. So it gives this law, it creates this law. This is the aspect of Shakti. And again, so this is the glue between the slides. This is the dynamic aspect. The universe, Shakti, the nature manifestation, the law of it is change. While Purusha, the spirit, is changeless. Shiva is immobile. Shakti is motion, is total motion. So this is the relationship between transcendent and immanent, between non-manifestation and manifestation, between the void and the full, between Shiva and Shakti. And now when we read it again, it starts making a bit more sense. It says, because memory and impression are the same in form, there is continual sequence, although they may be divided by class of birth, place and time. So basically here he says, memory and form. Therefore, he says there is a union between something which is transcendent. He calls that memory, like God must have a memory not to forget how the next slide should be compared to the previous slide. Because if the divine consciousness would forget, then the next slide would be completely chaotic. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh, shucks, you know, I placed the atoms of the universe in a different way. Then the universe would be like disrupted. So the cosmic consciousness can follow the evolution of the universe atom with atom from slide to slide, like, so to create laws of the universe. There is a glue. And therefore, here he says that because memory, this memory of the divine and impressions, the vasanas, which are in the mind, they are not in the spirit. These are vasanas, residues of the mind. They are the same in form, like when they manifest, they join to each other. Then automatically there is continual sequence, although they may be divided by class of birth, place and time. So he is trying to describe in a very subtle way the relationship between non-manifestation and manifestation, the fact that the vasanas, the samskaras, reflect somehow in the divine memory, and therefore things evolve the way they evolve. You have the karma to break your leg, or you have the karma to win the national lottery, or whatever karma you have, it goes that way. It's like the vasanas, the samskaras, make that the slide show evolves into that direction. It's a bit difficult to understand. This is a very vast sutra. It's a difficult sutra. But Patanjali uses it as a link in an argument. He doesn't stop at this. It's just interesting because he tries to define here a little bit how the non-manifestation influences the manifestation and how the manifestation influences non-manifestation. This is a bit of dance of Shiva and Shakti. The memory of Shiva and the impressions or the vasanas of Shakti, they dance with each other and they synchronize so that the universe gives, is glued together. The, the slides are not separate. The slides are glued in a certain sequence and we see the universe as appearing as a continuity of sorts. And then, because he made this, here Patanjali is airing is actually diverting from
from his own fundamental philosophy, and very few people realize this, it's time to mention it in Sutra number 10, because as you can see in Sutra number 9, he's basically making an analysis of the dance of Shiva and Shakti. And Patanjali is known for the fact that being an, a proponent of the classical yoga, he doesn't care so much about Shakti. Yes, he describes all those siddhis, but with a certain contempt to them, you can say. And all the time he claims that spirituality, spirit should be isolated from all these material manifested things. And here he just described an interaction, a dance of Shiva and Shakti, and then he goes further in the next sutra. And he says, there is no beginning to them, and the desire to live is eternal. He says, there is no beginning to the vasanas, to the samskaras, and the desire to live is eternal. Uh, other translators translate this sutra in a slightly different way, but the general effect, the general meaning is the same. And here Patanjali basically says something strange. He says, because the desire to live, this attachment to the universe, has no beginning, then it is kind of eternal. But that's very strange, because the desire of living, as he calls it, this attachment, the vasanas, they are actually part of prakriti. And according to Patanjali, and according to Buddha, and according to Shankara, prakriti called sam samsara or maya, is a transient, illusory, ephemeral thing. And on the other hand, a simple law of metaphysics says that everything which has a beginning must have an end. And therefore, the only thing which has no beginning, I'm sorry, which has no end, is the one which has no beginning. And what thing has no beginning? The cosmic consciousness, God, has no beginning. And that's why the infinite consciousness has no beginning and no end. Therefore, you would say in regular Indian metaphysics that ignorance, the desire to live, as he calls it, which is the same with ignorance by Buddha, this desire to live, this thirst for manifested experiences, has a beginning. It started at some point, and it will end in the day when you will reach the full nirvana. When you will reach the full nirvana, your ignorance will be over. And therefore, ignorance, or this attachment to material, worldly things, manifested things, according to Buddha, and according to what Patanjali professes in most of his other sutras, is a transient thing, it's an illusion. It has a beginning and it will have an end. And then you reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi and you are out of the whole caboodle and there follows freedom without end. There follows eternity. There follows the cosmic consciousness without end. But here Patanjali, carried on by the argumentation in the previous sutra, because he meditates on this dance and he discovers that Purusha influences Prakriti, and Prakriti influences Purusha, that spirit influences matter, and matter influences spirit. Basically, he is compelled to say, well, there is no beginning, there seems to be that this desire is, has no beginning, and therefore, uh, the desire, this desire to live, as he calls it here, it will be eternal, which simply says, Patanjali, did a great theological error. He just says, uh, Prakriti, 
is eternal. Well, if Prakriti is eternal, it is divine, because only the divine is eternal, because this makes Prakriti, or Shakti, infinite. So here, in these two sutras, suddenly Patanjali turns into a tantric. Suddenly he forgets that he despises Prakriti, Shakti, and wants to stay away from it, from her, and suddenly he starts becoming friendly and says, actually, the transcendent spirit dances with Mother Nature, and actually, even in nature, the Vasanas, because they are related to the memory of God, as I said in the previous sutra, they are eternal, as above, so below. So what is eternal there in its way, is eternal here in its way. And then he says, the desire to live, the thirst for life, which is defined by Buddha as ignorance, attachment, is exactly what prevents us from being liberated, is eternal. Which basically contradicts vehemently most of the things which he said. Here, there is a very strange contradiction in which we can see that perhaps Patanjali had glimpses of the higher reality, of the Bhava Samadhi, of the union between Shiva and Shakti, of the union between manifestation and non-manifestation into a higher unit, into the ultimate reality, or uh, maybe he was actually the adept of this view, but he wanted to simplify the Yoga Sutra and just to teach the dry teaching, and that was, and he here he somehow lost it a little bit, it oozed between the lines that he actually would say then, oh, whoops, well, here, this is not really my main trend in this book. But fact is that here Patanjali basically says Shiva is Shakti, Shakti is Shiva, Shakti is eternal as well as Shiva is eternal. In the moment when he gives the statute of eternity, in that moment it is a very, very strange thing, because eternity is one of the epithets of the divine consciousness. So, this is where we are going to stop for today. We have gone up till the sutra number 10, and the last two sutras are indeed odd. Then you are going to see that in the next one, Patanjali gets back to his regular discourse, and he starts speaking in his normal way. But here he speculates a bit metaphysically, and he makes a very, very interesting point, which is out of line with the rest of his doctrinal, theological uh, statements before.